everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm Kerry Parker, and we've got another great show for you this week. We're going to be talking to uh, Ernesto Falcone from the EFF. He has been here before. And today we're going to talk about net neutrality. I'm sure you've been hearing this on the news, and it's really something that we all need to understand. And it's kind of a tricky subject to understand. So he's going to walk, walk us through it and help you understand what it is and why it's actually important to you in your everyday life. And then, of course, we'll tell you what you could do about that. We've got a bunch of little news items to cover this week, and at the end of the show, I'll give you uh, the tip of the week, where I will tell you how not to give away too much information on the web and how you're probably already doing it. First up in the news, Google has announced that they are going to stop using your emails to send you targeted advertising. Now, what that really means is what they had been doing is all the emails that you sent through Gmail, they were scanning through your emails, looking for keywords, you know, car, diapers, <laughs> retiring, you know, whatever, looking for these keywords to try to eventually give you advertising based on those keywords. So basically, Google wanted to have full access to all of your email content so that they could send you target advertising. Now, Google's uh, business suite called G Suite uh, was already not doing that. So I guess what they're saying is they're, they're going to bring those two things in line and stop doing it uh, on all their accounts, including their free Gmail accounts, which so many of us are using. And that and that's a good thing. So what this also could mean, which would be very beneficial, is even though even though your email is encrypted between you and Google and then from Google to its final destination, hopefully, Google decrypts it on their end so that they could read it and give you target advertising. But with this new policy of uh, basically saying they're going to keep their hands off your email, that actually now opens it up for them to be able to encrypt your emails all the way from end to end, which would be a good thing. And I'm actually kind of hoping that's that's one of the reasons they're doing this, but we'll, time will tell. In other news, Microsoft has announced some nice uh, security changes coming up in uh, the next version of Windows 10. Uh, for one thing, they're going to get rid of SMB version 1. That's uh, the networking, the Windows networking protocol that was allowing the WannaCry virus to run so rampant. So it was bugs in SMB version 1 that allowed that virus to spread so quickly. So it's a really old, uh, I think it's a, the new version has been out for 10 years. So, you know, Microsoft, like so many companies, want to try to preserve, you know, support for these things that have been around a long time so that people with old computers can still use these features. But the older these features are, the probably the less secure they are. And it just gives hackers more opportunities to, to break these things. So we've got to, at some point, start dropping support for some of these older vulnerable technologies uh, and move everybody forward. So uh, in the next... Uh, release of Microsoft Windows 10, uh, Microsoft is saying that they're going to end support for SMB version 1. So uh, at least we'll get that off the table, and that will help make us all a little bit more secure. One of the bigger news stories of the week is that it was discovered that almost 200 million voter records were left unsecured on the Internet for 12 days. This is information that was compiled by the RNC, the Republican National Committee, and 200 million is huge. It's the largest such leak ever discovered. Uh, that is 62% of the U.S. population and a whopping 99% of all U.S. registered voters. So basically, if you're registered to vote, the chances are that your information is in this data set. Now, the company that collected all, the, the, all this information changed some security policy or something for some web server where this was stored on and accidentally left it completely exposed for 12 days from June 1st to June 12th. They say that they don't believe that, that anybody accessed that data, but I don't know how you could really prove that. So 
The problem is this data has tons of info. Now, a lot of this info is public already. Your voting record is already public, not who you voted for, but the fact that you voted, what party you were affiliated with, where you voted, all that kind of stuff. A lot of that information is available online, and, and a good portion of this is just that kind of public data. But it was all collected. You know, The process of getting all that collected into one space is difficult, and that's why they pay these companies to do it. But on top of that, it has also other things like you know home addresses, birth dates, phone numbers, uh, and, and it recorded how you felt about certain hot-button issues because the whole point of this database was to figure out how to reach out to certain voters in specific ways. Uh, you know, where you stand on gun control, do you own a gun, stem cell research, abortion rights, um, what your you know party affiliation, of course, is, what your religious affiliation is, your ethnicity, uh, all sorts of weird demographic kind of information like this. Some, uh, some records had more than others, but it was a lot of very detailed information about people. And this information was wide open and available for anybody who happened to run across it to download it. And who knows who did. So there's lots of issues here. But for one thing, it's a huge identity theft risk. If there's all, anybody with that information, that much information on you may very well be able to impersonate you or convince your bank or someone else that they are you and get you to get them to reset a password for you, uh, something like that, and give them access to your accounts. So identity theft would have to be a, one major concern, but it's also just a privacy concern. This is a lot of very detailed information that was, coll- uh, that was collated on you that you, you probably don't want to be uh, out there. But just realize that that's where we—that's the world we live in today. This kind of data is collected constantly about us. We are being tracked, and uh, information about what we do online and even offline with our cell phones and things like that is is being collected by all these companies and collated into massive dossiers on people. And and if you if, if the if the Republican Party or the, or the Democratic Party has this information too, you can bet on it. Um, it's as it, collecting all this information. It's sitting out there on a hard drive somewhere which means that it can be hacked, it can be stolen, it can be copied. Um, so, you know, we, we really need to find some way as a country to figure out who owns this data, what kind of data is allowed to be collected, you know, come up with regulations on how it's supposed to be secured and come up with some fines for people that, that, that don't do that correctly. If there's no incentive to keep this stuff secure, this stuff is just going to keep happening. So uh, that's a pretty big deal. Um and I wanted to let you know about it. There's really nothing you could do, really nothing you could do about it, other than to be aware that it happened, and and push back on your representatives and say this is not cool. This is not something that we need to uh, allow. We need to put some curbs on this, and and come up with some penalties that that will incentivize these companies to be better about securing that data. All right, and one more little quick bit of news this week. Something I just had to mention because it's fun and it's a little bit of brightness for our day. And that is the Girl Scouts are going to be giving out cybersecurity badges. So that is just fantastic. I guess they 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 polled a lot of the Girl Scouts and find you know tried to find the things that were interesting to them. And they, and they said computers, cyber cybersecurity. I want to learn how to protect myself. So I think that's fantastic. So if you've got a girl in the Girl Scouts, I would strongly urge her to get her cybersecurity badges. And then have them explain all that information to you when she comes home. And now it's time for the interview. Let's talk to our Nestel Falcone from the EFF all about net neutrality. We are one of the fastest growing podcast and talk radio networks in the world. You're listening to the America Out Loud Talk Radio Network. It's where we say, let the silent voices be heard. We stand proudly with the men and women who serve in our armed forces, 
and our law enforcement heroes. Thank you for being part of our family. And we'll see you back at AmericaOutloud.com. All right, and I am very happy to welcome back Ernesto Falcone. He is the legislative counsel for the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Uh, he specializes in federal legislative process on issues impacting privacy, intellectual property, and internet freedom. Welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. And today we are going to talk about net neutrality. And I know this has been all over the news, and I, my guess is that most people really don't know what the heck it's all about. And so that's why I brought you on, and we're going to talk about this. And I really would like to dig in and make sure people understand, because there's now is a critical time for net, net neutrality, so now is the time to make your voices heard. And to do that, you need to know what you're talking about. So let's dive right in. D explain to us, what it, what the heck is net neutrality? They throw it around all the time. Uh, so what does it really mean? And like, what does it mean to me as an average consumer? What is, what is it all about? Sure. So from the consumer perspective, the internet user, net neutrality is essentially the concept that when you go online, every and any website, online service, application, all the things in the internet that you want to access are all available to you in, in a non-discriminatory way, meaning there's no you know, slowing down of certain websites over others, no uh, prioritization of certain applications of others. It's all treated equally in a way that allows for a level playing field uh, amongst all services and applications. Okay, so for me, as just a regular Joe sitting at home watching my Netflix on my streaming device, you know, come home and play with my computer, how, do, how is this affecting me? Why do I care about net neutrality? I, you know, so far it just sounds like, eh, it's just it's just something that happens up in this internet thing, and as, far, as long as I can get my Netflix, I'm good. Why, why does this matter to me? Yeah, so, you know, let's take Netflix, for example. The, the existence of Netflix has is dependent on the fact that they can serve you products, uh, in this instance, movies and shows, uh, without cable companies and telephone companies uh, interfering. And net neutrality is, is the rules of the road that are right now upheld under the law that, pre that prevents cable and telephone companies from, from affecting companies like Netflix in favor of their own uh, television packages. You know, for you know, a concrete example, you know, Comcast would love to be able to prioritize Xfinity, which is their kind of Netflix-y package uh, to the disadvantage of Netflix, right? I mean, but right now, if they did that, they would be violating the law and there'd be a number of penalties and, and, and punishments for, for doing so. So they, they don't. They don't have any uh, clear way to do it. And then in the larger scheme of things, all the new products we get every year on the internet are dependent on the fact that a startup can, can you know, start small inside a garage or in someone's basement and then become the next big product mm -hmm. because they have just as much capacity to get to as many eyeballs as possible as your Google, Facebooks, and Netflix, for example. So the, these are the things that net neutrality preserves. These are the things that, that we're really fighting to make sure the law stays on, on, on this side of the equation. Uh, and this is, this is kind of the nature of the fight. Gotcha. So, what are some of the what are some of like maybe the biggest the biggest misconceptions about net neutrality? Because I, I, I feel that you know, like so many of the things in our politics today, unfortunately, that there's so many all the different sides are kind of you know they've got their talking points and they've kind of got their smooth you know, kind of ways they talk about this thing. And I think there's a lot of kind of hype and kind of weird I, I, because people don't understand, it, including I think a lot of times the media when they're reporting on it. My guess is it's probably confused more people more than anything. Are there any like major misconceptions that people have about what net neutrality is or maybe what it isn't? 
Yeah, I think the the number one misconception is is the Federal Communications Commission's rules uh, is akin to government control of the internet. Um, the internet is is a wide and diverse you know, variety of sources of information, and all that net neutrality addresses is the behavior of the the parties who are supposed to serve you the internet, namely the broadband providers. Um, there's nothing that changes in terms of what websites you get. There's no uh, favoritism by the government uh, on behalf of one content, you know, one piece of content over the other. Uh, everyone's, you know, in essence, this is a, a law that enhances speech because it enhances everyone's ability to communicate openly to the entire world without any sort of impediment either by government or, uh, you know, by the major private industry. So one of the arguments I've heard some of the, the, the current FCC chairman kind of say is we never had these regulations before and look what happened. It all, it all worked itself out free market, you know, it just kind of worked out and there were, there was no issue and all these great companies flourished in the early days, early days of the internet. And that's how we got here is without regulation. Um, why is that a false argument? Why, why does that not hold? Yeah. I mean, it doesn't hold because we actually have always had some semblance of, of an open internet obligation on, on cable and telephone companies even under Republican administrations in the past. I mean, what Chairman Pai, the current chairman of the FCC, is doing is, is fairly radical. And, and, and when I say that, I mean in the sense that he is departing from FCC tradition, whether it was run under the Republican Party or the Democratic Party, uh, in such a uh, major way. No one has ever argued that Comcast, AT&T, Verizon need more market power to control what happens over the Internet, which is essentially what the FCC is doing. Everyone has always in the past issued rules or policies that were meant to curtail their behavior to ensure that the Internet stays open and free. Um, we have a market that's super concentrated at this point, vertically integrated in, in every direction you look, that the threat of favoritism and, and you know, discriminating on what data is flowing depending on its source and origin is, is, has gone up so much in the, in the following years that – um, it's really unfortunate that this, this chairman doesn't believe the threat's real uh, and will go so far as to invite you know, invite catastrophe in some respect. Mm. So let me throw this theory at you and let's see what you think of it. So for me, it seemed like just from a historical perspective that kind of when the Internet started, it was kind of a level playing field by default because there there were no entrenched incumbents. There were no people with deep pockets that had already made their billions off the Internet. There was... Facebook, uh, Facebook, Netflix, YouTube, uh, all these companies that you know were were all kind of starting on the level playing field because there wasn't there there was really you know no competition. I mean, actually, back in the day, of course, you know, Facebook there was what MySpace and Friendster or whatever, yep. whatever, yep. whatever those were. They're now long gone, and so now it, it seems to be the way this stuff tends to work is when you're you know when you're a little guy. You want the level playing field. You want the regulations to make sure that everybody keeps, you know, keeps playing by the rules. Uh, and then once you become, you know, the the behemoth, the 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 the, the industry leader in something, that's when you, you know, you, you kind of want to flip the script, right? And now, now you want to be able to take advantage of your monopoly and your and your your position. Right. Right. Yeah. And I think that 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 tends to be the trend in industry. The difference here, though, is the the behemoths have always been the behemoths. Uh, namely, cable and telephone have always been fairly concentrated as an industry. Um, you know, the if you look at the history of, of telecommunications, you have merger after merger after merger after '96, uh, and kind of following the AT&T uh, Ma Bell breakup, 
where every two years there's just like one company merging with another. We used to have so many, for example, in wireless, you know, we used to have dozens of wireless providers, and then we got down to like the big eight, and then we became the big six. <laughs> now we're essentially the big two, and you know, Sprint and T-Mobile are trying to break in to be number big number three. Um, you know, these are all things that that happened over the years. So, on the flip side, you know, you talk about like your Netflix, your Facebook, your Google, your internet companies. In some sense, it doesn't matter how big they'll become; they will still be subject to the design, you know, the whims and desires of the pipes they ride over. Uh, in terms, because they they cannot bypass the market in terms of cable in most parts of this country, for example, because most people only have one option for mm-hmm. broadband. Um, so it won't, you know. So they know that, you know, in terms of the ISP market, they they know their regional monopoly status. Uh, they can charge monopoly rate, monopoly rates in in terms of above market rates, and they know they will get their money for it unless the law, you know, presses a scale against that type of behavior. Um, the other thing too, if, you, if we go back to the early days of internet, you know, we're talking about like dial-up. You used to have actually dozens of ISPs because what you had was people, you know, locating their their server like an AOL or Prodigy or Net Zero. Um, and the telephone company was obligated to operate neutrally, meaning I could connect to any ISP over the telephone network because net neutrality applied to them as a, you know, as a matter of law for decades, uh, dating back to the 30s even. Mm. And the the result was we had tons of competition. W- once we moved away to the broadband market and the rules requiring kind of open access to the infrastructure, you know, evaporated. Then you had this really high level of concentration, and the the importance of net neutrality, you know, grew uh, because you just had less switching capacity. And that's actually uh, that's I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted to I wanted to touch without getting too wonky. I want to talk a little bit about the history sure. of this because that's um, that's I think kind of crucial. So you're right. So the the original I don't know what the 30, 1930s because the Telecom Act was 90s. There was there was some communications bill for, yeah. you know, back communications in the 30s. act of 1934 yep. thank you yes so and that you know obviously obviously is very old and it, you know not and to apply that to what we had now I'm mean, of course they had telephones back right so mm-hmm. but at some point uh they decided to because the cable companies were kind of in a separate bucket of law uh yep. to bring them into the same bucket of law in other words bring it under what we call title two i believe um that's correct. So talk to me about what drove that and, and, and how that happened. Yeah, so so 2015 is the, the point of the, the of our you know of the whole story where everything broadband has been brought under what's called common carrier status. Common carrier is as simple as, as I can make it. Um, it's essentially it's like a, a legal term to to explain uh, a private entity who holds out a service for a fee, uh, and that service is some sort of transportation service to a destination. Uh, their obligation is to send you to the place they are offering to take you to in exchange for the money you pay them, and and so you know other concepts of common carriage are, are like the airline industry, the taxicab industry, for example. Hmm. So on the internet, it's the same premise. You want to go to a certain website, you've paid your monthly subscription. They are obligated to send you to that website. Uh, Title two of the Communications Act is essentially common carriage, the common carrier status of of a communications provider. Because of a lot of, of, of legal, you know, monkeying around on, on the obligations of ISPs that they themselves have dro- drove. I mean, Comcast, at and Verizon are the biggest drivers of, of essentially deregulating themselves to the point where they, there were suddenly no rules mm. for a short period of time. Um, 
you know, the FCC finally, you know, after a number of, of, of court decisions, this was a Comcast v. FCC and Verizon versus the FCC, that the ultimate conclusion from the courts was if you want to have non-discriminatory networks and networks that operate as a matter of law in a neutral manner, they have to be common carriers and it cannot be anything else because anything else is 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 not a you know you're basically trying to pretend they're common carriers which legally that's not a that's not lawful that's not a that's not a correct reading of the law so telephone became DSL in the early days broadband was a common carriage system as you mentioned earlier absolutely right cable television was the original uh, inception of cable uh, and then people invented cable modems, which then started transmitting information, and that that's where we started deviating from a consistent framework of what how information should travel and the obligations of those providers, um, because the FCC decided then that it's not a common carrier system when it's cable TV, but it's, or cable modems, but it is when it's a telephone DSL, and then they decided oh we'll, we'll harmonize it by saying neither of these are Title II services, um, which is what has caused all the problems in the legal space to maintain sustainable net neutrality rules. Huh. And that all came down a couple of years, a couple of years ago, as you said, and, and that was, it was a big fight back in the, back in the day, as I recall, but there was a lot it, like they're doing today. They, the FCC opened this up for comments. And I recall uh, the chairman being swayed by the, by these comments at the time. I think he was kind of, yep. I don't know if he was on the fence or if he was actually even leaning the other way. But once open to comments, it was, it was flooded with comments, and, I, and, I, and it made a difference. Um, so that's kind of where we're at again today. How do we get to that? How do we, we just settle this, right? So why is it? Why are we right. back there now? What's going on? So, so we persuaded the persuadable, the you know, the initially like you know maybe leaning one way or another, Chairman Chairman Wheeler. Um, you're right in that initially when he set out to do. Uh, net neutrality and resolve the ultimate legal questions that he wasn't quite sure he wanted to declare broadband as a common carrier system um, because there's a lot of political pushback on there. Not 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 sound legal logic, but purely a political issue. And the persuasion that all all the you know the people, small internet companies, big internet companies, some ISPs, uh, the president himself, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, all all these different players raise their voice about what's why it's important to have a neutral network by by that's supported under the law. Uh, you know, he eventually was convinced in, to supporting Title II, which is great. Chairman Pai was a detractor from the beginning to the middle to the end back then. I think sometimes it's easier to dissent when you're not the decision maker, mm. and now he is. And my my thinking is it's still true that he is persuadable, uh, it's just a matter of he needs to see from enough different people and walks of life, if you will, that it's important to have legally sustainable uh, net neutrality rules, rules that, that will survive a court challenge. Um, and he knows very well that the only way those rules would actually work would be under Title II. He's deba- openly debating whether we even need rules, and I think there's been a 1,000-plus, and I really mean like 1,000-plus, uh, small businesses that have written to the FCC so far saying, I depend on a neutral network. I depend on Title II upholding my legal right to to, uh, to not be interfered by Comcast, AT&T, and Verizon. So the politics are, are, are pretty firmly on one side. It's just a question of whether enough is enough pressure is being placed on the chairman, as well as Congress, for that matter, uh, to make them walk back from this, this trajectory they're going at. And I think that's completely doable. 
So, you know, I, I've read some of um, Mr. Pye's arguments on this and, and, you know, I find them yeah, personally lacking. Of course, I've very, <laughs> I'm very biased in favor of, of net neutrality, but how are, you know, how are they sell How are they really selling this? How are, and obviously, you know, if you look, if you look at the supporters of each of the, I, I think the general public is certainly still behind net neutrality, but yes. obviously the big ISPs and the cable or the, the cable companies and such are, you know, pushing really hard to roll this back. What, how do they make their argument? What is from a devil's advocate point of view or, or just, sure. what, what are they saying? What, what, how, what is their argument and why, and why do they fail? Well, this is the most important thing for your listeners to, to understand. If you listen to the language that the chairman is using, he knows net neutrality is popular. He knows the vast majority of the public, regardless of whether you're conservative or liberal, do not think that cable companies and telephone companies need more power over the Internet. Uh, most people are very concerned that these companies have monopolized their, their, their access. So the language he uses, he, he invokes kind of the same themes that neutrality advocates have, have been using for all these years. You know, he talks about how he's trying to promote Internet freedom by removing the government regulation, if you will. Um, the idea that net neutrality was a burden on the investment uh, portfolio of broadband companies, mm-hmm. and therefore faster services aren't going to be rolled out. You know, these, these are the words he's using because people want faster services, right? They want high-speed uh, deployment the the problem is Net Charlie has nothing to do with those things. He's just using things that people like to hear about, uh, and then and then kind of doing this like bait and switch of, and that's why we need to get rid of net neutrality. Hmm. Um, I think with enough public uh, attention, you know, these arguments kind of fail on their own on their own lack of merit, if you will. And a lot of my work at EFF has been focused on making sure as many people know what is happening, and and then taking the next step to you know be active in some respect. Gotcha. All right. So some, a couple of the other arguments I've heard for this, and I, I, I find them interesting, um, is one, one is the Netflix problem, which is that the Netflix, I, you know, I heard somewhere that Netflix, like between seven and nine o'clock at night accounts for some ridiculous amount of network traffic, like 50 to 60% of the network traffic is people are watching Netflix at home. And so what, what some of these ISPs are saying uh, and this is kind of some of the esoteric stuff, but it, behind the scenes they are saying, you know, I'm having to, you know, seriously, it's seriously taxing my network. So what some, you know, I know that one of the things that these guys are trying to do at one point was charge Netflix more uh, to, to gain access to their systems. Like, you know, it's like, Hey, you know, you guys are swamping my system. You know, if you guys yep. want to keep using my system, then you need to pay up. So why is, what do you say to that? It, it, how sure. does that argument go? Yeah, so, you know, two things. It, it's not Netflix that's taxing their system. It's their consumers, right? Hmm. The subscribers to the broadband network are what are taxing the system by going to the service that they've chosen. If that, Why would that be necessarily Netflix's problem or Netflix's fault hmm. when, you know, at the end of the day, they're not the ones sending traffic. They're just responding to requests for traffic. Um, I would also point out that the price Americans pay for broadband is, is disproportionately higher than most of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think we have more of an adequately compensated the cost of the network and the cost of service with our, subscri- our subscriptions at this point that I'm just not real. I just don't buy the argument that, um, they're, they're not able to keep up with the cost. I mean, I think, uh, you know, I we all pay different bills. Like for example, I, I forget exactly what I pay per month. I think I pay eighty a month for a service that someone else in another part of the country pays you know one and one hundredth the price for the speed. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And most of the network costs really come from rights-of-way and public works uh, construction. It's not even the actual transit of information. It's, it's actually, the you know, based on all the studies I've seen about trying to promote you know, gigabit fiber deployment and things of that nature, um, a vast majority of the cost, about 60% of the cost of, of a broadband network is the construction. Once it's built, you know, the remaining 40% of the cost is that is all that remains. And, and if you've made your money back on the 60%, you know, you're, you're not really hard bent to sustain a profit margin. I mean, it's it's kind of telling when uh, just yesterday, AT&T's CEO, uh, Randall Stevenson, he was at the uh, White House talking about, you know, ISP investment. And, and he's talking about how, you know, even during the the economic collapse of this country in, in late 2000 or two, early 2009, you know, when we had the financial crisis and the banks were falling, um, that the ISPs continue to invest, continue to uh, continue to build. They're the only industry that was growing during the collapse, and and that's absolutely true. That's completely true. They are the only industry that made more money year after year, even as every other economic sector was failing. Um, and that's because of how essential the service is, and how people will, will not just give up broadband even on on the toughest times. So they're doing well. I mean, I'm not too worried about, uh, at the end of the day, their economic sustainability. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, I definitely would like to talk a little bit about the the, the whole monopoly thing and, and throw out a, an idea of maybe making it a public utility, but we'll get to that in a second. One more thing I want to do, another argument that I've heard that's very interesting, and a lot of people, when they think of ISPs, they think you know they think of home. They think of Time Warner, Charter, uh, some of you know, the cable or, or DSL providers. But your cell phone provider now is an ISP as well. When you're connecting to the internet on your phone, you're there now. Your internet service provider, and one of the things that they are trying to offer that is running afoul of net neutrality, and I think a lot of people have a really hard time understanding why this is bad, uh, is what they're calling is zero rating, right? Is what is is, right. is the when Verizon says, "Hey, if you want to watch our video, that won't that won't cost you," because you know, at this point we all have still that's not unlimited for most people. You're paying you know for some amount of download, so you've got to pay attention to what your how many gigabits or whatever you're using a month so they're saying hey but if you watch our video that's free that doesn't go that doesn't go against your 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 monthly limit that and then that turn they call that zero rating why why is that bad and how does that relate to net, net neutrality so it's it's an interesting thing because there is a way to do zero rating but it is net neutral um, that is not being done anywhere yet in this in this country. They're, what they've done is is use their kind of gatekeeper power to kind of pick winners and losers on the internet. Um, but the problem is that the CTIA, this is the Wireless Association, they have a study that they've done that has identified that people will gravitate towards zero-rated applications and zero-rated content, knowing that they can shape traffic and user behavior in such a powerful way. Uh, it raises the question of whether they're going to zero rate only stuff that financially benefits them and then leave the rest of the internet, you know, kind of under a, a billing, you know, hourly billing structure, if you will, right? Like a, a, a pay-to-use a pay structure, which is the way the internet used to be back in the, the dial-up days. And then we yeah. got away from that. And now we're back to it again. Um, that's the inherent danger with, with, with companies, you know, using zero rating as it is now, where they're, they're picking a set of a suite of applications and services, um, and then, and then disadvantaging the rest. I mean, there's no, you know, there's no benefit and they'll, they'll talk about it as like, we're giving people free data, quote unquote. And it's like, it goes back to my original point, but, but I already paid a monthly subscription <laughs> fee. Like you're not, you're not giving them your free. You're just not charging me more on top of what I already paid, which everyone pays a lot for their wireless service. Yes, nowadays. they do. 
And again, it's, it's, you know, it's kind of pay to play almost in reverse. It's, you know, if it's free for me, but it's not for somebody else, that's effectively making someone else pay more. So I'm, I'm just, yep. dis, I'm disadvantaging my comp- my competition's content over mine. So yep. that brings me to my next that's question right. is how do we ever get to the point? And this really chaps my butt is how do we ever get to the point where are the people that provide the, the, the tubes that all this stuff runs over also provides the content that runs over. So it just seems like a complete conflict of interest. How is it that we, that we do that in this country that we're, you know, cause time Warner obviously has both content and mm-hmm. is providing a way to get that content. That's a, it seems like a clear conflict of interest. Yeah. The, the fundamental problem there has been antitrust law has not been, uh, enforced in, 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 you know, emphasize in a way to address what are what's called vertical integration. So the, the quick synopsis of that is uh, when you have two companies that compete with each other ser- selling the same products and they merge, that's what's called a horizontal merger because they're both operating on the same playing field. They're both kind of directly conflicting with each other. They're both along the same line in the competitive landscape. What's happening in broadband is, is what you have is distributors, which is the, the cable and telephone company, and the suppliers, which are the studios, the broadcasters, uh, the television uh, producers. Since they don't directly compete with one another, the antitrust authorities at the Department of Justice um, and the FCC or Federal Trade Commission don't really have a good intellectual framing about how to address that problem. And so they have essentially gave the first big one a, a, a pass. You know, Comcast, when they merged with NBCU, you know, got, got through fairly easily in terms of the regulatory front. Uh, there was not a lot of opposition raised, and this was during the – this was one of the first big telecom issues under the Obama administration. Um, they got their swagger back in terms of antitrust when it came to horizontal mergers that came later, like uh, AT&T and T-Mobile. But for these vertical mergers, they, they really kind of let, let the ball slip. And, you know, that's not to the administration's fault necessarily because the Supreme Court, quite frankly, decides – Kind of how the law is implemented as as you know our top uh, you know judicial branch, um, and they have always uh, felt that a vertically merged entity is more efficient for the market, and therefore that's a good thing, not a bad thing. I think that thinking is outdated, and I think it really needs a, a rethinking by the justices. Um, but it takes an executive branch to fight the, take the fights to the courts, and then force the Supreme Court to rethink these things. Um, once Comcast merged with NBCU, then all the other ISPs started getting in the market and saying, hey, you let them do it. Why can't we? You can't let us do it. Um, and there's, you know, there's a fairness argument on their, their behalf for that. The problem is they should never have had the first ver- vertical merger in the first place um, to allow the rest of them to say, me too. Yeah. So we're, we're very used to how things work in the U.S., and, uh, and maybe this is outside your wheelhouse, but what is, how do things work? in other places around the world. Cause I know, for instance, I know we pay way more for broadband than just about any place else on the planet. And, and why that is, I'm sure is partly to the, because of the monopolistic uh, stature of a lot of our ISPs, but how do they, how do they handle this stuff? Is there a model that we could be looking at uh, that we might be able to improve what we're doing by looking at some, what other countries are doing? Yeah. So, so, I mean, there's two, there's two ways to improve the broadband competition issue in, the, in terms of pricing and what we pay. Um, the U.S. has adopted this philosophy of what's called uh, facilities-based competition, meaning uh, the, you know, multiple ISPs will build full-fledged networks and have those networks compete with each other in the same market. Um, my opinion is that's generally failed uh, as, as a premise because you look at what we have and you know, we have mostly monopolies in most parts. 
what Europe did and, and a lot of other countries did was the, the major incumbent is actually legally obligated to lease access to their infrastructure you know, at, a, at a market rate. Um, and anyone else that wants to ride on the infrastructure can ride on it to get to customers. So they essentially kind of took our, our telephone you know, dial-up internet model uh, and applied it to broadband. So you have markets where you, know, you have 12 options for your, who's your inner service provider because they're all riding over the same um, fiber optic line. And the infrastructure, you know, specifically fiber optics, is more than capable of sustaining that type of capacity because we're talking about you know, glass pipes transmitting information at the speed of light. I mean, you, you could just, you could put so much type of data throughput in that type of infrastructure um, that, you know, required sharing and open access to the networks is is a totally feasible and doable thing. Um, that's kind of the, the fundamental question the United States has to decide is, is whether we're going to keep trying multiple networks being built or we're going to do some sort of open access, shared access model. Um, if we do multiple networks and stay with facilities-based competition, there has to be a really huge rethinking about how we manage the rights-of-way um, in terms of access to the telephone poles, access to the pipes, uh, access to apartment buildings, all, all the different things that you know, I think most people don't realize how much of a choke point that is to competition. Um, but it is, and this is why we have one cable company in every market and not two. Well, that reminds me of back, back in the old long-distance days when there used to be one long-distance company, and then eventually the government said, no, 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 you've got to, you've got to open this up to competition. So you've, got all, you've already got all the stuff laid out. So what you need to do now is turn over and let some – and that's where MCI came along and some of the other – and I think it was Sprint, too, wasn't it, originally? Some of the, that's right. some of the original long-distance right. companies. That, that was the model they followed. And, it's, I mean, it sounds like that's kind of – that is kind of what we need here. And, and I want to take that a step further. And to me – I think in this marketplace and where we are now, to me, this is critical infrastructure for the U.S. Um, for us to be competitive, for us to be, you know, because it's it's kind of like the highway system used to be back in the day. Because we built this massive highway system and allowed us to transfer goods and services and things all over the country freely and easily, and that it was just it was a huge boon for business. And I would think that at this point, even almost from a you know from a security standpoint. Why don't we? You know, I guess I know the answer to this question before I answer it, but it seems to me that we, what we, what we really should be doing is almost treating it like a public utility. Like, and for for one thing, it seems silly for everybody to lay their own fiber, right? Why should you lay five pieces of fiber next to each other? Why not just lay one, you know, and then have you know, and either lease it like we're talking about before with the, or you know, honestly, just have the government say this is too important to 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 let go the other way. Right, right. No, I think, and I think that's right. And, and Title II of the Communications Act and Common Carriage is is a, is pretty close to you know the utility regulation idea, at least in terms of what rides over the pipes. Um, the FCC explicitly, you know, did not go forward on any sort of like shared infrastructure planning. Um, it's just the politics are even greater, you know, even greater in the opposition in that space. But that doesn't mean it's not the right direction. I mean, I think we at EFF, for example, we, we support municipalities building their own fiber optic networks yes. so long as they're building them as um, as open access networks, right? So that any private entity or, or the government itself um, can write over to provide uh, critical services. Um, you know, it's a different question, that, what, you know, in terms of how to get the private industry to do that. And it just, it's one of those things where... Um, you know, I think a lot of people feel very strongly, but may not realize that that was kind of how we started out in this space. Um, I mean, that was actually the original premise of the 1996 Act, 
was to have open access networks and shared infrastructure. That's how you got uh, competitive telephone companies in more markets. But the FCC over the years and, and Congress has, has kind of forgotten the premise and has moved away and you know and shifted to the facilities-based competition model, which, again, as I said earlier, I, I think that's generally failed. So I'm glad you brought up the, the municipal broadband thing because that is something that's also just driven me crazy, and I don't understand it. And in fact, I'm from North Carolina, and one of the big cases was here in North Carolina where there was a town in North Carolina that was not being properly served by the local ISP mm-hmm. uh, to the point where there were kids – you know, trying to get their homework done. And today, if you're a kid in school, you've got to have access to the Internet. And the parents would drive them in their car to some place like outside of McDonald's where they could cop some free Wi-Fi. And they were doing their homework sitting in the car because that was the only place they could get Internet service. So the town decided, well, let's just do our own ISP. Let's let's provide service to our to our to our um, citizens. And it was blocked. You're obviously familiar with the story. What happened there and how did how was that? Why did that fail? Yeah, I, I think, and I don't remember, it, it's the same story everywhere, so I don't know, so I right, kind of know the right. story without knowing the specific one. If I remember, I do remember North Carolina specifically on children going outside McDonald's Wi-Fi to get internet. Um, you know, there's two ways the ISP market, you know, the cable and telephone companies resist competition. They either go straight to the state legislature and get them to pass a law that restricts cities' ability to provide uh, broadband service. Or, or they have a law that's passed that makes it virtually Im- impossible to compete. Um, w- one way they do that would be saying, okay, the city can build a broadband network, but they can't cross-subsidize the infrastructure from, from other services and other revenue streams. It has to completely live and die on its own. The ironic thing about that is major cable companies cross-subsidize their infrastructure all the freaking time. What, what they do is essentially like, oh, this market's going to be competitive. I'll charge below market rates there until I drive out the competition. And then in the, in the areas I have more of a monopoly situation, I'll just increase the price there to make, you know, offset my loss so I don't actually lose money. Um, they, they do that all the time, which is why anywhere Google Fiber or municipal broadband company deploys, the, suddenly the price of cable goes way the heck down and the speed goes way the heck up. Yep. They're responding to those pressures. Uh, only because they have to, but they try to head it off of the past through either lobbying or, or litigation. Yeah, that happened here. Uh, when Google Fiber, Fiber came in, all of a sudden, uh, Time Warner's, like, ooh, look, our, you know, we, for the same yeah. price, we're going to be a lot more speed. service, too. Yep. <laughs> exactly. Look what I found. That's <laughs> yeah. uh, exactly right. That's exactly right. So now I, I know with, telephone, with, with telephones, for example, uh, and since I'm kind of hoping these are under the same, uh, the same umbrella, with telephone companies, they're usually – you know they'll they'll charge some nominal fee for this, but part of the the deal with the with the government is you can provide these services, but and you can charge a little fee, but you also got to make sure you get the little guy. You've got to you've got to put phones out in the rural area where it's not necessarily profitable for you to do so. And that sounds like a, kind of an analogous situation with this cable thing. Is that does that same rule be, not apply for cable? No, it, it actually because of the uh, of declaring broadband as a common carrier service. All of the government support structure that, that was created for subsidizing and, and helping deploy in difficult to serve areas, um, this is a program called the Universal Service Fund. Um, that was brought fully to bear on broadband as of about two years ago. So it's still very much in its early stages, but you know, for the first time, we actually have now a direct, uh, you know, a direct involvement by the government to, to help get to the areas that, that will never get service from the private sector on its own. 
Um, that's how most rural America has water. That's in terms of running water. Mm-hmm. That's how they have electricity, um, roads and bridges, postal service. I mean, they, they, you know, at the end of the day, everyone wants a perfectly purely free market private approach. But no one realistically thinks anyone is going to try and make tr- make any money going to, you know, parts of the country where there's only like 10 people for every like 15 square miles. Right. right. I mean, it's just one of those things where that's a purely government function at the end of the day, uh, if if the goal is for universal access. Gotcha. All right. Well, let's, let's wrap this up as I usually like to do with, you know, let, what can I do as, as a listener to this podcast, as a concerned citizen, as someone who finally believes that net neutrality is important? I know that right now that, that the, the FCC is open for comment on their proposed changes to the to the regulations. What 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 can I do? How can I be most effective in making sure that my voice is heard? Yeah. So so most importantly, the you know, taking the step to talk to your elected officials and the Federal Communications Commission. So for the FCC, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, my, my organization has a website called dearfcc.org. Um, if you go there, we kind of set up a, a wizard, if you will, that allows you to easily fill in uh, some boxes that helps tell your story uh, in terms of why net neutrality is important to you. And we'll go ahead and take care of submitting it to the agency's record on your behalf. Uh, and then the other thing to do is, is absolutely you have to talk to your two senators uh, and your member of Congress in the House. They need to know that people back home, voters back home care because they have a direct oversight responsibility over the Federal Communications Commission so that at the end of the day, they're the ones that decide kind of which direction the agency goes. They're the ones that grant that agency power, uh, both by a matter of law and money. So if they said don't proceed forward with your repeal of network neutrality, uh, particularly if, it's, if, if, if we get more traction with the Republican Party, that will mean a lot to Chairman Pai. Uh, he will heed that call, and I think he would uh, desist on his current uh, trajectory. So is it? let's say I happen to know that my senator or, or my representatives is, uh, is actually already fighting the good fight. They're already, they're already pro-net neutrality, and they're, and they're making themselves heard. Is it still important that I reach out to them? So still do it because it's always nice to feel like people are, are, you know, happy with what you're doing, you know, in D.C. I mean, I think that's always a regular thing for politicians. But then in those instances, you should look at who your friends are uh, on your social media or just your family. Anyone else out there that has not done the same thing as you in terms of made their voice heard, you know, at the FCC and with Congress, you know, get them to do that. Because if everyone gets like three of their friends to do it and their friends do it as well, it creates this this amazing effect of of kind of an explosive movement across the country. Um, that that's kind of the core of grassroots activism, and, and that that's how I'd encourage anyone who's kind of already happy with their elected officials is to take the next step and make sure your friends are involved and your family's involved. Excellent. And I also know that you guys have a great service uh, at the EFF for contacting your representatives. Uh, I've used it myself. You you go to the you go to your website. I, for, I forget the exact URL, but uh, you go and um, it will actually walk you through contacting each of your representatives to leave messages and, and, and whatever. Tell me about that. Yeah. So we have Democracy.io, which is like our catch-all website. And then we actually have, if you go to EFF.org, uh, at the top, we have an action center where you can actually go explicitly to um, to contacting your members of the, uh, the Senate and the House on net neutrality. So we already have that built on. It's on our front page, uh, and and every and we actually publish weekly a blog post on net neutrality on a different theme or different issue that's implicated uh, on net neutrality issues. So this week we wrote about free speech. Last week we wrote about antitrust law and why 
antitrust law on its own is is insufficient. You know, we kind of talked a bit about that, and you know, kind of where antitrust law has taken us so far. Um, and so we have a lot of content for folks to educate themselves on the variety of issues that are at hand. And uh, I would also, I got to throw this out. I love John Oliver, so go, just Google John Oliver and net neutrality and check out his thing. It's a little coarse, so you wouldn't watch it at work, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's really funny stuff. And I, you know, as always, I'd love the way he kind of dissects these things in a funny way, and but still managed to bring home all the important points. Check that out. Uh, and also donate to the EFF. If I can give you guys a plug, uh, you know, it, you could do all as much as you want yourself, but you know, help these guys fight the good fight, you know, by giving them money, you're helping them do this stuff for you as well. And they do some really great stuff. So, uh, Ernesto, thank you very much for coming on. Talk to us today about net neutrality and, uh, hopefully we can get everybody out there to make their voices heard. Thank you. Oh, and if I can add one more thing, please, uh, July 12th, that's the big day. A lot of uh, websites, some big and small, are all, are, all of us are organizing to do uh, take an action that's public to raise the awareness of net neutrality and importance. So we've made an announcement, and about 100-some websites are, are kind of joining the cause, and, and we want to get it to thousands. Um, so if you run your own blog or your own website, uh, July 12th is the big day for everyone to kind of speak with one voice on the Internet so that D.C. hears us. And I think July 12th is, what, a week before the actual close of comments? So it's, it's like toward the end of the comment period? Yeah, it's about a week before the first round. There's two rounds of comments. Mm. The second round will close in, in mid-August. Um, but there's a lot of things happening. Uh, July 19th is when the SEC goes to Congress uh, for an oversight hearing. So it would be great if politicians see, I've got a lot of people back home that care about this issue. What are you doing about it? Um, and, and also just driving as much uh, content to the record as possible. So there's a lot of a lot of good things. And if you really want to get out there, I know the Congress is about ready to take its summer break too, and they're going to come home and hit those town halls. So, you know, if you, right. really, if you really want to get out there and get yourself heard, head out to one of those too. That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. All right. Well, thank you again for very much. That was very informative, and uh, look forward to hearing from you again in the future. Maybe I look forward to that as well. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Thank you. You're listening to the America Out Loud Talk Radio Network. It's where we say, let the silent voices be heard. We invite you back to AmericaOutloud.com to get all the latest. Make it a daily stop and also get the app. You go right to the App Store and download our free app, and that will put all our content right into your hands on your phones and your tablets. It doesn't get any easier than that. As always, it's time for the tip of the week. Uh, every week, I'll try to bring you some very specific thing that you can all be doing to help yourselves stay more secure online or protect your computers and your friends and family. So this week, we're going to talk about how much information we give away to websites. And I'm here to tell you that we're already giving away too much info. So when you go to a website, uh, it's very common nowadays for them to make you sign up for an account to get to their services, their information, or whatever. They, they make you sign up. It's often free, but they force you to sign up. Most of them usually just want an email address and a password. Some of them actually want a lot more information than that. But, you know, we don't want to do that because basically what they're doing is they want your email address so they can send you other stuff or sell, sell that email address to somebody else so that somebody else can sell you stuff. Some of these quote-unquote free sites are not really free. they got to pay for their stuff somehow. And the way a lot of them do that is by selling your information. So let's talk about what you can do about this. 
So first of all, I want I want to tell you a story about something that's been happening recently that even makes this even more insidious. So normally you go to this website and let's say it's one of these websites that asks you to fill in a whole bunch of information. So you go and say, you know, they say, if you want to use this site, you need to sign up for a free account. Just give us all this info. And you start going through the form and you're typing in your name and your address and your birthday and, you know, or whatever it is they're asking for. And you're kind of going, you know, okay, you know what? I don't, I don't want to give them all this info. I can't believe all this information they're asking. They don't need this. I don't want to do it. I'm just going to quit. I'm going to close the, I'm going to close the form. I'm not going to click submit and I'm just not going to do this. It's not worth it. Well, what you need to know is that actually there are some websites now that are getting really tricky and they're harvesting that information even if you don't submit the form. So even though you did not click that submit button, they're actually taking the info. As soon as you type it into the cells of the form, into the, in the, in the fields of the form, they are actually harvesting that information anyway. So just understand that if you autofill this out, like maybe your browser is set to autofill some of this information for you, which I would turn off. Maybe you've started writing it and you've changed your mind. You decide you don't want to give it. Sometimes these websites are storing that information off anyway. So what can you do about that? First of all, I would create a separate email account for your pub, for your public stuff versus your private stuff. Everyone's got at least one email account that they use with all their friends and family and whatever. Just don't use that email account for all these other things. So go create yourself another, you know, an Outlook.com account or a Gmail account, some other, uh, some other thing with, and and pick some username that really is not based on your name, so it's not terribly recognizable. You know, pick some kind of a weird uh, email address and make that your public email address, and then that is the email address you would use to sign up for all these stupid places that require you to sign up. But there are other things you can try too. These don't always work, but I want to give you these just as other ideas. So if you know you're going to go to a website and you just want one thing, you just want that one thing or you just want to use it one time and they're forcing you to sign up, there's a couple things you could do. First of all, you could use a disposable email address. Uh, there are some there are some web services out there that, be, for this exact reason, allow you to quickly create a disposable email address, one that just gets thrown away, one that you'll never use again. One of the more popular ones is called Mailinator. That's M-A-I-L-I-N-A-T-O-R. You don't even have to register with them. You just create off the top of your head some some address and uh, my cool address at mailinator.com, and just by creating that and putting that in there. Any emails that that company gets at that address, they will automatically create a temporary account for you. So you go to the website, they say, give me your email address to sign up. We're going to send you an email that you need to click on that link to verify that you own this account and set up your account. And until you do that, you can't use the service. Well, so you would give them a Mailinator account. You'd go to Mailinator.com and say, here's the email address I just created off the top of my head. Are there any mails waiting for me? And there probably is that one email. And then you could open the email there, click the link, and you're all good to go for that website. And that email will just get thrown away and never used again. So it cannot be used to spam you. There are other services you might look at too. Called uh, There's one called 10-Minute Mail. That's one zero-minute mail. Uh, another called Trash Mail. There's a bunch out there. If you, just, if you do a Google search or a DuckDuckGo search on disposable email address, you'll get all sorts of them. Now, some of these places will block those, so uh, that may not work. Another thing you might be able to try is using some shared email accounts. There are some other services out there that also, to address this exact situation, uh, allow people to post uh, shared accounts. So it's like, hey, don't bother creating a new one. I've already created one. Just use mine. Uh, the most popular one is probably Bug Me Not, B-U-G-M-E-N-O-T. And if you go to Bug Me Not and tell them what website it is you're trying to access, they will give you a list of accounts that say, try this one. And in fact, they'll even kind of rank them by how successful they've been. Now, these don't last very long, so you, you know this may or may not work, but it's just another option for you. 
Now, one last piece of advice. If none of this other stuff works, if you've got, if they force you to fill in this information and they list that field as required and you don't feel like giving it to them at the last ditch effort, lie, just lie. Most of this information they don't need if they, they don't really need your address. Now, if they're shipping something to you, then you're going to have to give them a real address, obviously. Uh, but when they ask for things like your birthday, all, you know, most of these sites, all they really need to know if they need to know at all is whether or not you're a minor. So just pick something 20 years ago. Um, anything will do. It doesn't matter. Just pick random dates for your birthday. That shouldn't matter at all. Um, there's no reason not to, even if they say the field is required, not to just give them bogus information. And the more you do that, the harder it will be for people out there to find, to take all this information and co uh, correlate it to actually who you really are. And there you have it. There's the tip of the week. And I want to say a special thank you one more time to Ernesto Falcone from the EFF for coming on and telling us all about net neutrality and why that is so important to us. I strongly urge you to make your voices heard. Go to dearfcc.org. Uh, and, and that will give you uh, a method for registering your comments with the FCC. And if you go to the EFF, it'll also help you talk to your three representatives, your two senators and your house of representatives person, whoever that may be. Uh, and they're great tools for helping you reach out to them. And I strongly suggest that you make your voice heard as always. You can find links to all the most important information from this podcast on the web page for this podcast. So come out there. You can also download the America out loud apps. Uh, where you'll be able to hear us uh, online 24-7 on the Radio Show Network, and you can also get the podcast through that app as well. All right, that's it. Until next week, everybody, stay safe, and don't get caught with your drawbridge down.